In today's scripture reading is from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. I'm reading from the New International Version. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was not reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled with to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How's that? I'm going to try this today. It makes me feel like I should be rapping or something. Which means I'm going to be using one hand for my notes. Well, we'll see how that goes. Awesome. It's good to see you here today. We're back into our Revelation series. Over the last few months, we've witnessed the arrest and the trial from a distance, but nonetheless, of uh, Canadian-Korean pastor Lin Hyun-soo at the hands of North Korean authorities. Some of you have seen him, seen his story, seen the news reports. Pastor Lim has been convicted of subversive plots against the government, which is how beastly empires always view the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. They know their enemy. They know that the lordship of Jesus is subversive to their oppressive ways, and they do everything they can to stamp it out. They're going to fail. That's what Revelation tells us. I was inspired by a recent McLean's article about not only Pastor Lim, but also North Korean Christians who boldly witnessed to Jesus in the midst of great tribulation. Koreans in the North live under one of the most, to use Revelation's phrase, beastly empires in the world. Worshipping the leader as a god is required for really daily survival, and the people languish under the thumb of a true beast. But the church of Jesus Christ is alive there. It's vibrant. It's witnessing. And while there are many who are helped to escape, there are others who stay. There are some who have escaped to even return so that they can continue to witness to the Lamb in this war with the beast. And there's an uncomfortable truth here, the truth that we're going to hear today in Revelation. The only way the people of North Korea will come to know the love of Jesus will be through the suffering witness of his followers. The only way. 
And this is what Revelation 10 and 11 teaches us, which is what we're looking at today. People can change only when the church willingly and boldly witnesses to Jesus, regardless of the cost. Last week, we explored Revelation 8 through 9. And if you missed it, I do encourage you to catch it up online. There was a vivid vision of judgment, and it combined the ancient story of God pounding Egypt with some very live fears that Rome carried to reveal one basic thing. Sin and evil will be judged, must be judged. But more than that, we saw in this vision, more than judgment, God wants people to turn from wickedness and to receive life. And what we saw through all of it was this, that judgment, in chapters 8 and 9, judgment failed to do the very thing that God wanted, which was to bring change to the human heart. And so here's the big question. If judgment doesn't work to turn people around, what does? The answer is deceptively simple to understand, and yet, let's be honest, it's pretty difficult to live out. People will turn from sin and embrace God's grace only through the vibrant, spirit-filled witnesses of Christians who never quit. It's only when we're so convinced that only Jesus can change lives that we're going to be willing to sacrifice our own comfort so that people can actually find Jesus. It's only when we as a church believe that people really do matter more to us than, than our money or our status It's only when we live that way that people will begin to believe that they just might actually matter to God. It's only when we believe that Jesus is the only hope for the world that we'll begin to be his true agents of hope in the world. Now, back in Revelation chapter 7, we were reminded that every Christian has received God's Holy Spirit living inside them. And and as such, every follower of Jesus has been sealed Meaning that while we might suffer and might endure hardships because of our allegiance to Jesus, we're protected from lasting harm and we're promised resurrection beyond death. This is what sealing meant. And remember what that meant for us in particular? We talked about how it means that God's got us and God is going to bring us through because we've been sealed. But here's the question for today. What have we been sealed for? What have you been sealed for? What's the purpose of our sealing? What's the reason why we were given the Holy Spirit as a community and as Christians in the first place? Today we get the answer. We've been sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can be sent in the power of the Holy Spirit as witnesses to Jesus. So let's hear Revelation today. We're going to walk through chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11, but let's just start with chapter 10. Here it is. And it's on your inserts, if you, if you want to follow along with the copy, it's on your inserts or in your, in your own Bibles. I'm reading from the NIV. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea. And his left foot on the land and gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voice of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up 
what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. As we saw earlier in the Revelation, there's an interlude between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seals. Remember that? There was a pattern. And that interlude featured the actual sealing of, of God's servants. We, we already looked at that. Well, this whole trumpet section, which we started last week and now we're exploring today, it follows the same pattern. After six trumpets have been blown, there's a long interlude before we come to the seventh and final trumpet. I wanted you to see that pattern. The interlude begins here at chapter 10, where John is commissioned again as a prophet. He was already commissioned back at the start of the book when he received his first call. Remember, John's on a prison island. Uh, He's been chipping away in a rock quarry. He's in his 80s. Uh, he's sent there because of his faithfulness to Jesus and his leadership in the church, or, as they might have put it, convicted for subversive plots against the government. Exactly what was going on here. John was told to write what he saw, and, and then he receives a vision of Jesus right off the bat, and it empowers all that follows, leading up to kind of the, the center of everything, where in the throne room of God, there's a slain lamb who's worthy to unseal God's scroll and set God's plan to make everything new into action. Those who've been traveling with us so far, you remember that. Well, in chapter 10, much of what happens here links John back to that original call, There's a bunch of things that go on, kind of literary, and the throne room scene of the scroll in God's hand. Um, The angel stands out as the most significant angel we've seen so far, and it bears many of the same characteristics of Jesus in chapter 1. And what he says is powerful. You know, he swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them and the earth and all that is in it and the seas and all that is in it, and says, there will be no more delay. No more delay. Meaning, it's all going to happen now. This is it. And that's likely the dramatic effect of these mysterious seven thunders. It's basically saying, no more warning. It's going to happen now. God's plan is coming to effect, and, and that's exactly what he says next. Notice, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, and when is that, as far as this vision unfolds goes? It's right now, right? It's, it's this interlude between the 6th and 7th. So it's just about to happen. It says the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The mystery of God in the New Testament is all about how God is going to make everything right. How he's going to reconcile everything to himself. Specifically, how he's going to draw all peoples. People from every nation and language and tribe. 
back to him. And the prophets, they hinted at it. They, they pictured this day when that would occur, but they didn't really know how, how it's going to happen. Well, that in this vision is about to be revealed. Are you ready? So what happens next? Following the prophet Ezekiel, um, the, this is the story that's behind this, John is told to take the scroll from the angel's hand, which is the same scroll we've already seen, and it's now unsealed, this lying open on the hand of this angel, and he's told to eat it. It would taste sweet because God's word is always sweet, but it would turn his stomach sour because this word of God, this prophecy that John is about to give, is going to bring tremendous conflict and trouble as the kingdoms clash and as evil resists the coming of the kingdom of the Lamb. What's the point of all this this rich symbolism, all the stuff that's going on here? Very simply, it's this. God's plan to renew the world comes into effect through the prophetic witness of God's people. That's what this chapter 10 is saying. It's the point of it all. In spite of all the layers and all the strange imagery that's happening here, Revelation 10 is telling us exactly the same thing that Zoe read for us already. That we've been commissioned by God as his ambassadors, commissioned to call the world back to him. That he has committed to us the message of reconciliation as though God were making his appeal through us. Do you hear that? Speaking God's word. We're agents of God, his mouthpieces, helping people find and follow Jesus. That's chapter 10. And it sets up chapter 11, where we're given this parable that reveals very vividly and very dramatically the exact same thing, that is through spirit-filled witness that the world is one. So let's read the first 14 verses of, of chapter 11. Again, on your inserts. I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They shut. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also the, their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood in their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. The third woe is coming soon. Now, this is quite a story, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> There's so much going on in this little parable that I, I am sorry 
especially for those of you who really want to get into the nitty-gritty, I'm going to have to glide over a lot of it. We can literally spend hours teasing out the many layers, the background stories, the intentional allusions. There's so much here. But I don't want you to be discouraged because even if we were to wade through this marvelous story for days, and we could, um, we're still going to come out in the same place that we're going to land today. Because this story basically conveys one thing. We've already heard it. That God chooses to accomplish his plan for making the world right through his sent witnesses to Jesus. The only way people will see Jesus and will turn from the sin will not be through this judgment, the judgment, or at least the uninterpreted judgment we saw in chapters 8 and 9, but it will be through spirit-empowered witness of the church, willing to go to whatever lengths, including personal sacrifice and death, to hear, to help people, other people, hear the good news about Jesus, about God's grace. That's where the story actually lands us, but... You know, that wouldn't be satisfactory. Let me take a few minutes and guide you through some of the larger aspects of this story. This opening action of John measuring God's temple is not a literal brick-and-mortar building, but it represents the people of God, is rooted in a prophetic action from the past, several stories. And it, it tells people that while there will be suffering, we've already heard this theme a number of times through Revelation, they will be protected through the trials, even if they die. In many ways, it's saying really the same thing we already heard in chapter 7. Sealed by God, measured out by God. It basically means the same thing. God's got them and God's going to bring them through. The 42 months, which is the same as 1260 days, which in turn is the same as three and a half years. We'll hear that later. All linked to an old prophecy by Daniel, which included a set time where God's people would suffer. When there would be a war on between Satan and between the followers of the Lamb. And what chapter 11 does is it unveils a mystery that it's through the suffering of God's people that God's plan for redemption is going to be accomplished. Just as the slaughter of Jesus, the Lamb of God, brought salvation to the world, so too as his followers are faithful witnesses, even unto death, will people come to know God's forgiveness and salvation for them. And this is tremendously encouraging news for these Roman Christians, these Christians in the Roman province of Asia who would have been receiving this letter for the first time. But it's incredible encouraging news for North Korean Christians too. And for Iranian Christians. And Afghani Christians. And maybe even Canadian Christians and American Christians too. The image of these two lampstands and two olive trees are, are taken directly out of the prophet Zechariah, and they're linked up with something we already heard in Revelation, right? Where the churches are represented as lampstands. We see that right off the bat in Revelation when it starts. These two witnesses here in this parable in chapter 11 are the church, called as God, God's witnesses in the world. In the Old Testament, there had to be two witnesses for a legal case to have any credibility. And you see that through the law. And, and when Jesus sent out his disciples to proclaim the coming of God's kingdom, he sent them out two by two for similar reasons, so that they would be credible witnesses. And we see basically the same thing here. These two witnesses, symbolically represented as lampstands and as olive trees, came to bear witness to Jesus in the world. This is the credible church in action, making God known, pointing people to Jesus through our actions, through our words, through our lives. Do you see how this is really, the story is saying the same thing that we've known all along, that God has called his people, his church, 
to be witnesses to Jesus, that somehow that's how God is getting his will done here on earth as it is in heaven. Through his vibrant, spirit-filled witnesses who just don't quit. So what's all this business you're wondering about, I'm sure? Fire coming from their mouths. You know, bringing drought, turning water to blood. I mean, come on, plagues whenever they want to. Nobody wondered about that? Should I move on? Ignore it? If you've spent any time in the Old Testament, you've run across a couple of big characters. And for some of you, the Old Testament is still uncharted territory. I get it. But there are some great stories in there. I, okay. So, I, I, you know, for some of us, this is older news, and for some of us, brand new. But the, you don't have to read for very long before you run into one of two guys. And if you keep reading, you run to the second one. Moses and Elijah. Arguably the two greatest characters in, I mean, you've got to throw David in there too, I get, but, uh, you know, two of the greatest prophets, certainly, in the Old Testament. And if you read their stories along, you find that these are the two kings that were specially known for confronting evil empires, confronting evil kings, demanding that God's will be done, and announcing judgment if they were ignored. And there's a number of stories of them doing the things that are mentioned here. Fire coming down at heaven and consuming a group of soldiers. That's Elijah. You know, turning water to blood. That's Moses. Uh, Causing drought. That's Elijah too. Uh, And so all of these illusions are really designed to point to one thing. That the church has been given the power of God's Holy Spirit to confront the power of evil like the prophets did confronting it with the good news of Jesus. Now, we don't literally consume our enemies with fire. It's a parable. But we do announce the good news of Jesus. And somehow, in there, the purifying fire of God does consume our enemies. But how? By turning them into brothers and sisters. That's how it happens. They're no longer our enemies. We aren't turning water into blood, but as we point people to the only source of life, Jesus Christ, we're revealing to them, and sometimes this is hard, and sometimes they push back, and sometimes there's difficulty in here, but we're revealing them that everything else in life is worthless. Everything else in life, ultimately even, is destructive if it's cut off from the source of life, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers the witness of the church. And these witnesses are protected long enough to fulfill their calling. Did you notice that? In fact, they could operate with impunity right up to the moment that the beast comes, overpowers them, and kills them. And they're killed just like Jesus. Notice the way that their experience follows the pattern of their Lord Jesus. They were bearing witness to the kingdom of God. There were signs accompanying their words. They were then killed and left to lie, and they were mocked. And, but then they were raised to life, and they ascended into heaven, and they were vindicated by God as faithful and true witnesses. And this is designed to remind us that The church, just as our witness mirrors the witness of Jesus, and as much as our suffering, especially down through the ages and at particular times even now, especially how our our suffering looks a lot like the suffering of Jesus, so too will our resurrection and our reward. God will bring us through. He's promised it. And then we come to the punchline of this whole story. Following the death and the resurrection of the witnesses, I want to read it, at that very hour, There was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and survivors were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
As we saw in chapters 8 and 9, judgment falls. Judgment comes. Evil will be judged. But something's changed here, hasn't it? From, from the end of chapter 9, something's changed. Have you noticed that? The first thing that's obvious is the change in response. At the end of the sixth trumpet, after all these warning judgments are given, the people refused to turn, still did not repent, would not stop what they were doing. They wouldn't, listen, couldn't turn around. Even though the judgments were gracious, they couldn't turn. They wouldn't turn. The judgment, as as right as it was and as holy as it was, it didn't produce the heart change that God wanted produced. But here it does. And why? What's the change? The change is because now it comes after the suffering and sacrificial witness of God's people, depicted by these two witnesses. We're shown that only when God's people embrace their calling, when you and I embrace our calling as his witnesses, will people see the warning judgment or see the way their life is heading or see the destructive patterns in their lives and realize what they are, grace given, so that they have time to turn and follow Jesus. The people in this parable were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven, which in Revelation signals a heart change, a turnaround, a repentance. And the change here at the end is key. And what's key to the change is that this testimony of these witnesses, and they died and rose again. The testimony, the death, the resurrection of the witnessing church. But secondly, the other thing is that the math tells us everything here. Now, you might have heard this and thought, oh my goodness, what a tragedy. 7,000 people died. One-tenth of the city fell. That's horrible. But that's actually not the point of the story. These symbols, these numbers are, are symbols of actually something amazing, something unexpected. You see, in the Old Testament, many prophecies were given about God's judgment, that when it fell, only 10% would survive. Everyone else would be wiped out. But only 10%, a faithful remnant of God's people. And in, in a classic story with Elijah, um, when he had given up all hope, that there was no one faithful left in Israel, he was then told that there were a few left, just a few, just a tiny group. 7,000 were left who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. What happens here at the end of this parable is very significant. The math gets reversed. Rather than picturing almost total destruction with a few faithful remaining, it depicts almost total salvation with a few being judged. Rather than a few squeaking into the kingdom of God while the mass of unrepentant bodies piles up outside, the parable actually points towards the hope that many, many people from all nations, people from all tribes, people from multiple languages, multi-ethnic kingdom, that many people will find and follow Jesus with only a few hard hearts refusing to turn and receive his love. This is not what we expected to see, but it's what God has set out to do. And the key, the thing that brings it all together is that God's witnesses were present, willing to do whatever it took, to suffer whatever the cost, to proclaim God's grace in the power of the Spirit who was given to them. So what's the point in all this? What brings chapter 7, 8, 9, 10 into 11 all together? Very simply this. God gave us his Holy Spirit so that we could point people to Jesus. The only hope for the world is Jesus. And the only way the world is going to see Jesus is through the vibrant, unrelenting, spirit-filled, sacrificial witness of the church. It's the only way it's going to happen. 
Well, what did we learn through all this? I think there's at least four things. First, we learn that witnessing to Jesus is the purpose for which we were sealed. We've been sealed by the presence of the Spirit so that we can be sent in the power of the Spirit. And we, we realize that that's why the Holy Spirit has been given us. We remember things like, oh, Jesus, you know what? What Jesus said to his early disciples, he told them that to wait because he was going to send who? The Holy Spirit. And they would be his witnesses, right? Right at the start of the big history book on the church, the book of Acts. After the Holy Spirit has come, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses right from here in your hometown to the ends of the world. The reason why they were sealed, the reason why you and I have been given the Holy Spirit is so that we can be witnesses. You know, I shared a series about a year ago and it is on our website if you want to look. It captures, I don't know how many weeks it is, it's called Being God's Church on Purpose. And I explore the Great Commission, you know, going to all the world, preach the gospel, all that stuff. And it captures, I think, what we're trying to be, to be God's church on purpose. So I want to encourage you, if you, you know, you're bored and you want to listen to something, go reach back about a year, click on, in, in the, in, maybe we'll put up a link on Facebook or something, um, but uh, go back and listen to that series on the Great Commission. It really gets to the heart of our purpose. The second thing I think uh, we learned through this is that witnessing to Jesus can be messy and awkward. It can even cause problems for us and for others. I think that's just true. But let, let me get this straight before I, before I go on with that. You need to know that nothing brings me more joy, more life, more excitement than actually helping someone find Jesus. Nothing gives me more joy, more satisfaction than seeing someone take the next step in their journey. Deciding to follow Jesus further along the way, making a decision to deal with, a, with something that's been going on and, and, and finally owning up to bitterness that they've carried or unconfessed sin or, or, or giving, you know, forgiving someone for hurt, all that stuff. Nothing gives me more joy. It's amazing. Helping people find and follow Jesus is a reason to get up in the morning and keep going through the day. It's, it's amazing. So us as a church saying this is what we're all about, there's nothing greater to be involved in than that. That's all true. But, it doesn't mean it's always fun, or easy, or smooth. Sometimes we're right in the middle of mess, and things are going on in people's lives, and we're pointing people to Jesus. Sometimes it actually creates more problems for them. Even tension and weirdness. Not because you've been ignorant or strange, but because when people are pointed to Jesus, sometimes they realize the the stuff that Jesus is calling them to turn away from. They they realize what it's going to do to their lives if they follow him. And and there's angst there and there's tension. We see that in the story of these witnesses that, you know what? There's the the people were even saying the people who've tormented us, the sense of, of the angst and the, and the the tension that they experience of hearing the good news. But if we think we can point people to Jesus without any pain, without any awkwardness, if we think we can point people to Jesus without ever experiencing any kind of pushback or any kind of sense of discomfort, we have forgotten who we follow. We forgot who we're pointing people to. Because Jesus consistently caused a lot of, you know, troubled responses. People with angst, people going away sad, people realizing, oh my goodness, I don't think I want to follow this guy anymore. That happened. And as his witnesses, that will happen to us. 
Third, that we learn, witnessing to Jesus will provoke demonic opposition. These are kingdoms that are clashing. The kingdom of the Lamb. The kingdom of darkness. And people's lives are at stake. When we say we are all about helping people find and follow Jesus, there is someone out there who's committed to them not finding Jesus. Not following him. And he gets unveiled in all of his ugliness here in this book of Revelation. He's called a lot of different things that Satan would, will do for this morning. The devil himself. The devil will resist us as we become these spirit-empowered witnesses that God has called us to be. We'll experience resistance in a lot of different areas. And we need to know that. Because you see, we want to be the kind of church that makes Satan mad. We do. We want to be the kind of church that is so committed to reaching men and women and children so that they can discover that there's life, that there's forgiveness, that there's freedom, that Satan is starting to get super ticked off with the Erickson Covenant Church. You understand what I'm saying? That's the kind of church we want to be. Because we want to be the kind of church where people are actually experiencing God's grace that changes their lives. But we need to know that when we do that, we will face opposition. It will not be a simple walk in the park. Opposition might come through division. Opposition might come through misunderstanding. Opposition might come overtly or in subversive ways. But nonetheless, we want to be attentive to the fact that there will be opposition. Fourth, witnessing to Jesus is the key to changing lives. You've heard it all the way through, but I think of it again. If we're willing to lay ourselves out there, to say, all my comfort... All the things I thought were really important to me, when I measure them against changed lives, I realize it doesn't matter as much to me anymore. I realize this is what really matters. And when we're willing to lay ourselves out there, when we're willing to sacrifice, when we're willing to step up, people will respond in faith. The more we look like Jesus in how we witness, the more effective our witness will be. And we're going to see people's lives changing. We're already seeing it. We're already seeing it. You know, there's, there's people here, you, this morning, who can look back not very far and realize that there was a time when you did not know the grace and the forgiveness and the love of Jesus in your life. And dare I say it was because of the witness of some of these people in this community that made a pathway possible for you to find and follow Jesus? Yes, it was. Our witness is the key that Jesus has called us to help him change lives. Well, let's make this really practical. How does this parable actually affect you? And how does it affect me? You know, when we wake up, I was going to say go work tomorrow, but some of you aren't working tomorrow. You're spending time with your families, right? Yes. But how does it affect us when we get up, when we go throughout our week? I mean, what does this all mean? Because you know, you're going to walk away today and go, you know, what did your preacher preach about today? And, well, I don't know, some guy, some guy's breathing fire, some beast out of the abyss. I mean, I don't know what it was about. I hope you don't say that. If you do, you should fire your preacher and find someone else. But there, there, let me walk away these four things, okay, that, that I think there's four decisions we need to make about our witness. 
These decisions, I think, represent, based on what we've heard, what we've learned, based on what's being unveiled in Revelation, it, it helps us determine a kind of a mindset, or maybe better yet, a heart set. Our conviction that's based on what Jesus is telling us. Here it is. First, accept your mission. You have been sent. I think that's where it starts. You need to accept the reality that you have been called. That whatever situation you're in, whatever family you're in, wherever you happen to be working, the people that you rub up against, the people you interact with regularly, maybe it's online even, that you're not just there by a chance. That every one of us, wherever we are, we've been sent there. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have received God's Holy Spirit, you have been sent. You need to accept that. (laughs) Accept your mission. Accept the fact that you've been called. This is true of you individually. This is true of us as families. And this is true of us as a church that we don't exist for ourselves. That God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can be His witnesses to this valley. To the men and the women and the children that He has sent us to. This is why we were sealed. This is why the Holy Spirit is at work among us. This is why we want to help people find and follow Jesus. We need to accept our mission. The second one is embrace the awkward. Now, some of you are super good at this. Aren't you? Everywhere you go, you manage to create awkward situations. Uh, as a gift from your mom, or I'm not sure what it was. So maybe you could run a workshop for us on how to push through the awkward, because it's just part of your regular life. But for some others, it's not. We need to embrace the awkward. Your comfort, psychologically, even emotionally, your comfort in life, is not more important than their salvation. It's not. It's just not. Jesus is willing to send you into awkward situations. Can, can anyone say amen to that? He is willing to send you into super awkward situations. If he's willing to send his own children into situations where they die, do you think he's not going to send you into an awkward situation? He is. Jesus has been sending Christians into awkward situations, difficult places, hard realities, gut-wrenching realities for centuries, and he's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep asking us to follow him, to make a sacrifice, to lay our lives down for others so that they can experience freedom. Because somehow, in the mystery of how Jesus decided this all is going to work, we live out a very similar life to Jesus, where it looks an awful lot like his sacrifice. And for most of us, Canadians and Americans, this is more about feeling awkward than it is actually facing and suffering harm. And if I can say it with all the grace of God that I can possibly muster, and I say this to myself, you know what? We need to get over ourselves and get on with the mission. We do. Embrace the awkward. Third one is to know your enemy. Whatever pushback or struggles we might experience, we've got to remember who is fighting against us. It's very easy when we get into a situation to think it's them. It's not them. It's that guy. It's not that guy. It's her. It's not her. 
our struggle in Ephesians 6.12 says is not against flesh and blood. And boy, that's hard to remember sometimes. But it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to remember that we have an enemy. Next week, when we come into chapter 12 of Revelation, there's going to be an enormous red dragon that shows up to make war against God's people, highlighting yet again that we have an enemy, and he's super ticked off, especially out of church and Christians who actually begin to take God's mission seriously, who actually begin to prioritize people, who actually decide as a church, we're not just going to serve ourselves, we're going to lay ourselves down sacrificially for the people in our community. Boy, that makes Satan mad. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) Know your enemy. Know who it is and who it's not. The fourth one, and really it undergirds it all, is to remember God's promise. The witness of the church, your witness, will have effect. People will find and will follow Jesus as we faithfully, courageously, day in and day out, point people to the only person who can forgive them, the only person who can get down deep and heal, the only person who can save, the only person who can transform us. And that doesn't mean preaching in in weird context. That means simply pointing people to Jesus with the way that we speak, with the lives that we live, with the way that we serve. And God has promised that that witness, that your witness and my witness, will have effect, powerful effect, because the Holy Spirit is the one in us. And he's, he's committed to making it happen. Well, that, my friends, really inspires me. When I think of the men and the women in this valley, who, if we were to fast forward just a few years, they'd be sitting here, they will be sitting here among us, men and women and children, who this day, are out there enjoying the beautiful Sunday morning, oblivious to the fact that God wants them, (laughs) that God loves them. A few years from now, they're going to be here. They're going to be gathering with us for worship. And they're going to be singing praises to Jesus because we decided on days like today, on years like this, to say, you know what? We're going to be the kind of church Jesus called us to be. We're going to embrace the awkward. We're going to accept our mission. We're going to know who the true enemy is. And we're going to commit our lives to reaching people, to laying our lives down for others. There's going to be people here. And we can point back and say, it's because God is present among us, empowering our witness that lives are being changed. Boys, girls, friends, I can't tell you how I can't tell you how motivating that is for me. Like every morning. I'm not just blowing smoke. This is the real stuff here. This is why I get up in the morning. This is why I pray and this is why I serve and this is why I do what I do because I want to see more people. And and I when I think of how much that is going to change us and how much God is doing his work among us. Boy, I hope it excites you too. When I think of boys and girls who will grow up knowing how valued they are, knowing that there's a God who loves them, who's shaped them, who's created them for a purpose, that they'll, they'll actually grow up embracing God's purpose for their lives. Do you know what a difference that makes for them and for the generations that come after them? 
The only way it's going to happen, though, is if you and I embrace the mission that God has given us to be his witnesses. This is how Jesus has decided to bring his kingdom through us as his witnesses. It's what drives me. I believe it's what drives this church. We want to be the kind of church that makes Satan mad and makes change possible. Amen? Well, if you could, why don't you stand? Let's agree on this together in prayer as we close today. Jesus, you've given us your Holy Spirit, making us your children, reminding us of your passion and your love for us, calling us close to yourself and bringing forgiveness and healing and transformation into our lives. And we are so thankful. Holy Spirit, you've been given as a deposit, guaranteeing of, what, us, of what's to come, guaranteeing us of resurrection, guaranteeing us that you will never leave us or forsake us. We are so thrilled with that. But you were given spirit to us, not just so that we could enjoy the benefits of intimacy with you and of a life with purpose, but so that we could get in on what you're doing, your desire to see men and women, boys and girls, experience your life-transforming love. And so, Jesus, as the Erickson Covenant Church, we stand today as your witnesses. We accept your mission. We want to embrace whatever you throw at us, awkward, difficult, together as your people, knowing that there is an enemy that is fighting for the souls, the lives of men and women and children, and we have been commissioned by you to join that fight for their sake, promising that your spirit in us will make us effective witnesses for you. And so, Jesus, we simply stand today and say, do with us as you will. Use us as you will. Use us so that people in this valley and beyond the borders of this valley will find and follow you. And they, in turn, will join your mission of helping others find and follow you. We give you praise and glory for being so amazing, for entrusting us with so much. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Protect us from the evil one. And help us get on with your mission. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you today as you go. I really want to encourage you during coffee time, and they've got quite a spread there today, folks, to make your way around the room. Even if you know that's not an area I'm going to be able to be involved in, go and check it out anyway. Then you'll be so much more knowledgeable as you recruit others. Hospitality is out there. Worship will be up here. Can you throw that one up here, Jack? Amanda Terpstra will be up here around this, and please come talk to her and others, and back at the back. Anyway, don't miss your opportunity this morning. God bless.